Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoons at the latest and of course the greatest of emergency medicine where we try to make keeping up in the literature easy, and so we spoon feed it to you. Now, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a journal feed subscriber, and so you will not be receiving the full journal feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, they're all good articles, but if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. And remember, we never want money to be a barrier to better patient care, so if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, just get in touch. We can help you out. This is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by our authors, Seth Walsh-Blackmore, Jason Lesnick, Samuel Rouleau, Megan Hilbert, and Clay Smith. Okay, let's skip to the second article. Titled, Randomized Trial Comparing Low versus High Dose IV Dexamethasone for Patients with Moderate to Severe Migraine, out of the journal Neurology. I actually totally forgot about this practice in general and have not really been adopting it into my practice. This article sure makes it seem tempting, though. Alright, so we've spoken before about the evidence that a dose of dexamethasone can decrease recurrence rates of migraine headaches with an impressive number needed to treat of 9. If you're on board with this practice, then the question becomes, what is the right dose to be using? The article that we previously covered on this used 10 milligrams, but uh, you know, these authors, they have the same question. What is the right dose? You want high doses? I'd rather not use high doses when I can use low doses. Less complications, you know? So these authors compared dexamethasone dosed at 4 milligrams compared with 16 milligrams in addition to giving the patient 10 milligrams of metoclopramide to treat the headache that they presented with. They recruited 209 patients, mostly women at 86%, from two emergency departments in New York. They had to be diagnosed with a migraine by migraine criteria, and it had to be of moderate to severe intensity. The primary outcome was sustained headache relief with the farthest out that they measured at 7 days. Now, the authors found no statistical difference between the two groups, though a 7% absolute difference at 34% with the 4 milligram group, which was lower than 41% in the high-dose group. So it looked like the low-dose group was actually, if anything, better. Some patients still had headaches over the course of the next couple of days and the week, but the groups honestly were pretty similar. Sadly, the trial was stopped early for futility, defined as a difference less than 10%. I personally find that a little bit aggressive, but money rules the world and everyone is obsessed with having flashy positive trials instead of just well-done ones. Overall, though, I think this is nice. I will try to remember this trial a little bit better the next time that I see a patient with a migraine headache, and I offer them possibly some steroids to prevent the reoccurrence of their headache. Now I could probably offer them a pretty low dose of dexamethasone. In a spoonful, I never want bigger to be better when it comes to medications. 4 milligrams of dexamethasone was just as effective as 16 milligrams for migraine reoccurrence treatment in this short-term study. And then we skip to the fifth article. Titled, Landiolol and Organ Failure in Patients with Septic Shock, the Stress-L Randomized Clinical Trial out of the JAMA. You may have heard telltale of beta blockers being used in critically ill patients. I think the circumstances in which this has gained the most traction is refractory ventricular fibrillation, patients who have arrested. The theory there is that too much catecholamine stimulation is driving their continued dysrhythmia. So... If we calm things down, you know, maybe they could get better. If that works on patients who are arrested, then perhaps if we do it to patients who aren't arrested, but 
could go on to arrest, we could treat them early and then they wouldn't die, essentially. In this trial, they're trying beta blockers in patients with septic shock. Of course, at first glance, you'll think, oh, beta blockers in a patient with shock, that's crazy, they're in shock. But given the hypothesis I just discussed, you know, it was worth a shot. These authors used landiolol, which is not a beta blocker that I'm familiar with personally, but it primarily affects beta-1 receptors. It's very similar to esmolol. So in theory, we should be able to keep up their vascular tone, but calm down the effects of catecholamines stimulating the heart. Thankfully, they were pretty thorough for this trial. This is a multi-center RCT with open-label testing of efficacy and safety of continuous infusions of landiolol in these septic shock patients. I only wish they were blinded for this trial because this is the kind of trial that people actually have opinions about. Giving beta blockers in sick patients, that's kind of scary. All the patients were ICU patients who had been receiving norepinephrine for at least 24 hours and had a heart rate over 95 beats per minute. The patients were randomized to landiolol or usual care. Landiolol was used to target a heart rate of 80 to 94. They included 126 patients divided between the two groups. Now, the primary outcome was SofaScore at 14 days, which was 8.8 for the Landiolol group and 8.1 for usual care. That's pretty similar, no significant difference. However, the 28-day mortality was a little bit higher in the Landiolol group. 37% versus 25%. That's a 12% difference, which wasn't statistically significant either, but it's a bit fishy and probably a big driver behind the reason that this trial was stopped early since they figured that Lendiolol was more likely to be doing harm than good and at the very least wasn't doing much of anything. Though it was accomplishing a little bit of what it set out to do. The mean heart rate was 6 beats lower for the Lendiolol group, which meant that the MAP was 3 points lower as well, causing the norepinephrine doses they were getting to be 10 micrograms per kg per minute higher. And I think that's the problem here. They're giving two partially opposing medications. How are you planning on getting anywhere? If you increase the landiolol and then you just increase the norepinephrine to compensate for it, where are we going? Perhaps if the vasopressor used had been, I don't know, angiotensin, vasopressin, methylene blue, then we wouldn't have to be fighting ourselves, but it's hard to say and that would be an even odder trial. Again, perhaps, all comers with septic shock, maybe that's just not the right group. Maybe we would have wanted to test this on patients with profound tachycardia, since what we're really doing is, you know, controlling their heart rate. Though then, presumably, these patients were probably tachycardic for a reason, and if we drop their tachycardia down to a normal range, they might not be able to compensate with their stroke volumes, and we just tank their cardiac output. I don't know, it's hard to say. Either way, this trial was negative. In a spoonful, this trial does not support the routine use of beta blockers in septic shock. So that's it. Let's do our quick roundup. From the second article, shoot for low doses of dexamethasone if you're planning on giving it to migraine patients to try to prevent their next headache. And then from the fifth article, beta blockers, specifically landiolol, were not beneficial in the general group of septic shock patients from the ICU. Again, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not a part of the members feed, and so you missed three articles from this past week. What were they about? Well, one of them was about tubing people at the door of the ICU. Is that even reasonable? And then the second was updates on NRP. You want to know how to resuscitate babies, don't you? And then finally, we talked about why you should beware Brugada. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives, one spoonful at a time.